Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Um, and thank you for being here. Um, and thank you to our uh, viewers at home watching, or in your offices, uh, watching the live stream of this important event. Um, I'm delighted to kick off this special event uh, and for more reasons than just the immediate purpose of the event. It's for the launch of Dick Nelson's wonderful book, The Life and Work of General Andrew J. Goodpaster, Best Practices in National Security Affairs. Um, given the upheaval uh, in uh, Washington at the moment and around the world, the timing couldn't be better for a book about a person who embodies what I hope the Atlantic Council has been about for 55 years, and I know America has been about, which is the defense of values, the defense of constructive leadership in the world alongside friends and allies to create a more secure future. Uh, embodied um, by a great number of men and women who have been leaders of our country and leaders of the Atlantic Council. General Goodpaster was a chairman of the Atlantic Council, uh, and there were a lot like him. Uh, Dean Acheson, Henry Cabot Lodge, Lucius Clay, Mary Pillsbury Lord, Ted Achilles, and I could list many more. But he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of them all, except for perhaps one man standing or sitting in front of me, General Brent Scowcroft, our former chairman, current chairman emeritus, uh, who will uh, have a few words to say a little bit later on. Um, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. We're pleased to have so many distinguished guests and speakers with us today. Among them, of course, is Dick Nelson, the author of this distinguished work and former director of the then International Security Program at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Dick, uh, we worked very happily and well together. You greatly shaped the mission and the purpose of our work, and it's a pleasure to have you back here once again. Since Dick's time with the Council, the International Security Program has become the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. So who better to kick off our discussions today than General Scowcroft himself? Um, I'd also like to take uh, uh, a moment to give a special thank you to our partners at the Eisenhower Institute for all their efforts in honorary Gener General Goodpaster and helping uh, to make uh, this event a special one. It's a distinct honor to host the launch of this book, which details the life and service of one of the U.S. military's towering figures of the 20th century. And as we honor General Goodpaster, I'm pleased to welcome his daughter and son-in-law to the council, uh, Susan Sullivan and Roger Sullivan. Where are you? It's, 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 it's so wonderful. Are there more uh, family members here as well? Uh, and thank you both for joining us. Um, General Goodpaster participated in many of the most challenging U.S. national security decisions in the second half of the 20th century. And over his many years of service, he developed a truly unique perspective of the best practices in national security affairs across seven administrations. Throughout his decorated military career, General Goodpaster served as Deputy Commander of Military Assistance Command of Vietnam, NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and Commander-in-Chief of the United States European Command. A soldier and scholar who fought in World War II 
Andrew J. Good pastor recognized the government's focus on immediate problems, so he worked to create institutions that would help advance us toward a safer and better of the world. He was one of those people who helped create that liberal international order, security order, economic order uh, of institutions uh, that we are now defending. As a founder and president of the Eisenhower Institute and chairman of the Atlantic Council, General Goodpasser ensured that the spirit he embodied, that of positive civil discourse and moral leadership, would live on. This book is a testament to his distinctive and exceptional service to our country and to the wisdom which he sought to impart on those who came after him. Um, it's just a great pleasure to have Susan Eisenhower here and also to have Jeffrey Blavitt here from the Eisenhower Institute. Uh, you'll hear from Susan Eisenhower a little bit later on. Um, so against all of this backdrop, I'm very honored to welcome General Scowcroft, President of the Scowcroft Group and close friend and colleague of General Goodpaster, to deliver uh, keynote remarks. Having served in an extraordinary 29-year military, 29 military career, General Scowcroft is one of the country's great statesmen, and I'm honored to call him a mentor and a friend. He served as the National Security Advisor to both Presidents George, Gerald Ford and George H.W. Bush, the only individuals I've said so often before in U.S. history appointed to the position under two different presidents. Uh, the real uh, truth is it was under three because it was Ford as well, but it was deputy when Henry Kissinger was playing both roles, but I never say that in front of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Uh, I also need to point out that along with his great and distinguished service to our nation, he has been pivotal to the revival of the Atlantic Council over the last decade. So, General, thank you so much for all that you do for us here at the Atlantic Council. I'm personally looking forward to hearing your perspectives on working with General Goodpaster. That's a hard act to follow. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Fred. Can you hear me? Okay. <clears throat> it's a great pleasure to be back at the Atlantic Council again, and especially the launch of this important book about one of America's most significant figures in national security affairs. Andrew J. Goodpaster epitomizes everything that is public service. From his time under Eisenhower to serving as NATO's supreme military allied commander, Europe, his service at the Army War College, leading forces in World War II, Andy Goodpaster directed people and institutions with exemplary leadership. Dick Nelson has done a tremendous job of examining the extraordinary life and career of General Goodpaster. It is a testament to Dick's hard work and character that this book so accurately captures the exceptional legacy of this great American soldier and statesman. On behalf of the Atlantic Council, I thank you for shining a light on his many achievements and the lessons we can learn from him. Thank you. I first met General Goodpaster when he became a commandant at uh, 
the National War College when I was about to be a student there. General Goodpaster became a student, became a mentor to me and to many others of the students at the War College. That's where I first saw his skill at teaching people how to think, how to analyze, how to, how to do the process of making decisions. He became a mentor to me, and he provided me with invaluable perspectives on policy and strategy development. I learned a tremendous amount from General Goodpaster. Goodpaster's work and experience spanned periods of historical transitions and global challenges, from the Great Depression to World War II, the Cold War, and the post-Cold War era. These times of enormous geopolitical change shaped his thinking, and he emerged as a constant source of measured and strategic thinking in times of upheaval. It was because of his reasoned strategic thinking and intellectual honesty that Goodpaster was repeatedly chosen to contribute to and guide multiple administrations on national security policy. There is much we can learn from Andy Goodpaster, and Dick touches on many of those lessons in his book, from Andy's engaging manner and leadership to his courageous, measured decision-making under pressure, his collaborative method of bringing multiple voices to the policy-making table, and his emphasis on clarity of purpose as a guiding principle in national security. In the times of great transition that we face today, especially today, both in the United States and globally, Good Pastor's best practices in national security and decision-making are a lesson we should not forget. Thank you so much for the, uh, to the Atlantic Council and the Eisenhower Institute for hosting this, and for, to Dick for telling the story and capturing the mind, method, and manner of this great man. Thank you. Thank you, General Scowcroft. Um, it's a pleasure always to have you here, but particularly today um, in honoring Andrew Goodpaster and the Goodpaster legacy. Um, and I particularly liked your quote, especially today. Um, the, uh, uh, before I turn it over to Susan Eisenhower, I encourage you all here and those watching at home uh, to join the conversation on Twitter by following at AC Scowcroft and using the hashtag, hashtag GoodPastorLegacy. Uh, um, we are so pleased to have Susan Eisenhower with us today. Susan is the CEO and Chairman of the Eisenhower Group, Inc., and was founding director and now Chairman Emeritus of the Eisenhower Institute of Gettysburg College, where she worked closely with General Goodpaster. As the first president of the Eisenhower Institute, she became known for her work in the former Soviet Union, 
For more than 20 years, she traveled extensively to that region, focusing on matters related to U U.S. national security. Uh, and in fact, we were talking uh, in the hallway outside how we now uh, form, and I know you're working on that now, uh, uh, a strategy and policy uh, for U.S.-Russian relations. More recently, you've concentrated your efforts on the energy security field. Today, you'll offer your personal reflections about uh, General Goodpaster, and, uh, and then, then after that, uh, I just want to outline the way the rest of the, uh, the event will flow. Um, uh, so following Susan's remarks, Lewis Bob Sorley, a uh, noted historian of the period, will share his insights and then takeaways from his studies with General Goodpaster. And then, Bob, I'm going to be discussing more with you in the audience in a question and answer session after that. So, Susan Eisenhower, over to you. Fred, thank you very much for that uh, nice introduction. First, may I say that it really is um, uh, an honor to be here with you today, actually a rather emotional moment, truthfully. Uh, also to see so many uh, friends here in this audience. I know that so many of you here with us today have your own stories uh, about General Goodpaster because he touched really so many lives. Um, this is a, a great moment too uh, for the Eisenhower Institute to uh, participate in this event. Uh, that's actually uh, where my relationship with uh, General Goodpaster began. Uh, but before I tell you a few stories in that regard, I just have to say it's a particular pleasure to see the Sullivans here, Susan and Roger. Um, they know uh, very much how uh, deeply attached I was to General Goodpaster, who treated uh, young people. I was, I was in my early 30s uh, when General Goodpaster and I began to think about uh, establishing an Eisenhower Institute uh, here in Washington. And he always treated me like an equal. That was one of the remarkable things. But the way he would guide people to a better understanding of the situation or a better understanding of the potential solution uh, was nothing short of being artful. Let me just also uh, say that I think it's wonderful, Dick, that you have done this fabulous book. I mean, it means so much to all of us here in this community that finally we have, in one place, an extraordinary record of General Goodpaster's life, career, and, and his leadership. Uh, and how fortunate I was to have the opportunity to observe that leadership, even uh, after he had retired from the military. Because he had certain beliefs about retirement. I think he always used to say it was divided into three, that you had to do one thing that would help with the income, one thing that, one category of thing, that would be lots of fun, uh, but then another thing that would continue to give back to your country. Uh, and the fact that he um, directed so much of that energy here at the Atlantic Council and at the Eisenhower Institute has made us all the richer for it. I have to say, I had my first, one of my first big experiences with General Goodpaster after we uh, started the Eisenhower Institute. And I must say that uh, I started out being on the board, and I thought it was, uh, had the, it was in danger of being a tad sleepy because uh, the idea was maybe to give away scholarships, which are extremely important, uh, but being um, ready to do something uh, not only with my own life but with the Eisenhower legacy, I thought, well, I don't know. There's a new 
uh, leader who's just come to power in the Soviet Union named Mikhail Gorbachev, and why couldn't we figure out a way to engage him? And one of the wonderful things about being 32 is you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we would have ever done what we did, but it was with General Goodpaster's assent, help, and absolute conviction that we could make a difference that we move forward. Uh, so in 1986, uh, with the Chautauqua Institution, we staged the first open policy debate in the history of the Soviet Union. It had never been done before, and in 1986, we took 200 Americans uh, to sit in an audience with 2,000 Soviets uh, in an auditorium in Riga, Latvia, uh, and we debated uh, foreign and domestic policy, but mostly U.S.-Soviet relations in front of um, uh, a nationally televised audience. This was gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage uh, from uh, the start of the conference in the morning till the afternoon. And then in the evening, and this was the stroke of brilliance, uh, we had um, major performers from the American Ballet Theater, uh, famous celloists, and indeed the great jazz great Grover Washington Jr., who performed with their counterparts in the evening. Now, I thought this sounded great, and I thought it sounded like huge fun, and no problem here, right? Uh, I think General Goodpaster had a pretty good idea that something that hadn't been done before was going to be a tad harder than I might have imagined. Uh, but we somehow managed to pull it off even after Nicholas Daniloff was uh, arrested uh, by the KGB for uh, allegedly uh, passing secrets. He ended up in Lafortiva uh, prison, and then we had a major negotiation on our hands uh, to see if that could be moved uh, into a more positive space that would then make it possible to actually have our conference. Well, in my life, the rest is history. Um, the second time, and this is another insight into General Goodpaster's wisdom, uh, instead of going with 200 Americans, I was invited to Moscow for all by myself to a conference. And I have to tell you, there wasn't one person I respected in this city who didn't advise me to stay home. Uh, stay home because it would be too risky. They might use your uh, presence in Moscow for the wrong reasons. I mean, I don't know what they'd envision was going to happen, but it was enough to make me seek General Goodpaster's counsel. And he smiled and he said, you'll be just fine. Go there by yourself. And then it was really because of General Goodpaster, I realized that if I can't get on a plane and go there by myself, and I don't care whether it's 1986 or 87, I'd need to get out of the field right away. It was that kind of wind behind my back that he not only provided for me, but I knew, know for so many other people in this room, he did the same. Let me just um, sort of wrap up by saying, um, in addition to all the magnificent things he did for me, um, I, what a privilege, actually, to be able to share uh, an office with him. On a, and, and it's the dailiness of it that was so memorable. He'd come in in the morning having read the paper. He says, did you read what I read in the paper this morning? <laughs> and then he'd say, this is just not serious. Well, anyway, we will pass right over the contemporary relevance of that comment. Um, <laughs> Suffice to say that I, I really felt like in some way I could hear sometimes my grandfather's voice or I could hear sometimes General Marshall's voice because he used all those expressions uh, that they liked. Like um, uh, he'd say, let's not make our mistakes in a hurry. 
Um, and then I think he was the first person who ever said, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. He had a whole long list of these, uh, and all of them uh, come to mind uh, for me on a regular basis. Finally, um, I think the funniest thing he ever said to me, as you may know, my father, John Eisenhower, John S.D. Eisenhower, uh, was a military officer as well, and he worked for General Goodpaster, and then General Goodpaster worked for my grandfather, so we had many family ties. One day, General Goodpaster said to me, you know, I was just thinking about this. Your father used to work for me, I worked for your grandfather, you worked for me, now I work for you. And, <laughs> and I say that only because, what a wonderful joke. I, he, General Goodpaster never worked for me, or anybody else in this wonderful think tank community. He was always our North Star. And we, we always followed his lead wherever we went. So let me say again to all of you who are here to help us celebrate this wonderful book, Dick, um, that we miss him more and more every day. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Susan, for those heartfelt stories. Um, I, I particularly like the uh, let's not make uh, our mistakes in a hurry. So, uh, <laughs> but Bob Sorley, maybe you can join me up, uh, up, up on the stage. Thank you. Um, so uh, I, I, it's an honor for me to welcome you uh, to talk about uh, Dick Nelson's biography. Um, we have flyers uh, in the lobby that will give you all a discount to either order the book on Amazon or directly from the publisher. Uh, and if you're really nice, you might even be able to talk Dick Nelson into a signed copy and we'd be able to arrange that through the Atlantic Council. It's an amazing piece of work. When I first got to the Atlantic Council uh, 10 years ago, one of the first things General Scowcroft and Ginny Mulberger said to me is there was a very small budget item at the Atlantic Council for this book and for this project. And they said, there is no way that is going to disappear and that book is going to get done. And it's Dick Nelson who pulled it off, obviously, uh, with the help of Bob and, 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 and others. But uh, just, a, just a terrific accomplishment. And, and, and I know that General Goodpaster resisted this for a very long period of time. He didn't want the book to be written. And then finally, ultimately, succumbed to the fact that he thought that there were lessons in his life that should be known by others. And I'm sure that you will talk some about that. As a noted historian, uh, uh, Bob has been written several award-winning biographies and will be speaking on behalf of the author today. And so thanks for being here. And why don't I turn it over to you? I've got a list of questions. I'm yep. sure people in Good. the audience have questions as well. But I'd like you to kick this off of what you think is important about this story. Good. Thank you, Fred. Uh, I, I want to start by saying it's a special pleasure for me to be here with General Scowcroft because I first knew him when he was Captain Scowcroft and teaching social sciences at West Point, and I was lucky enough to be one of his students. We all thought then that he was a superstar of the first magnitude, and we have not been disappointed since. So nice to see you, sir. And thanks for having me to stand in for my good friend, Dick Nelson in talking about this wonderful new book. I'll tell you a couple things about Dick first and then, then about the book. Uh, he branched artillery when he graduated from West Point in 1960. 
Also, he has a PhD in international relations from Kansas. Early on, he was in Laos with what they called White Star Mobile Training Team. That was under the leadership of the legendary Colonel Bull Simons, later led the Sante Raid, a famous episode in the Vietnam era. Dick himself served in Vietnam as a MACV plans officer for psychological operations. He's taught at the Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth and the Industrial College of the Armed Forces at Fort McNair, a place that, uh, that I know well also in Andy Marshall's OSD net assessment shop. He was responsible for assessing military balances in East Asia. After retirement from the Army, Dick served at CIA on their National Intelligence Council drafting estimates, and he was an assistant national intelligence officer for science and technology. Then, you've already heard from Fred, he spent a decade or so here, and that gave him a, a, a wonderful basis for this, uh, for this book because he had the advantage that many biographers don't have of close firsthand personal knowledge of the person about whom he was writing including traveling with, uh, with General Goodpasture to Russia and uh, some NATO countries. And so uh, that informs this new book in a way that greatly complements his research. That research is comprehensive and exemplary. Dick himself describes it as the first in-depth mining of the several extensive collections of Goodpasture papers, reports, speeches and articles. It is that and much more. Among the important collections Dick has visited are the National Archives, the George C. Marshall Library, the Eisenhower and Lyndon Johnson Presidential Libraries, Libraries of the National Defense University and West Point and the Army War College, the Army Center of Military History, the Naval Institute, the Woodrow Wilson Center, and the American Battle Monuments Commission. Uh, Dick, you must have a, quite a collection of frequent flyer miles. His extensive interviewing included members of the Goodpasture family and such senior officers who served with General Goodpasture, Brent Scowcroft, Ed Rowney, and the recently departed Jack Vesey and Willie Y. Smith. I'll just uh, uh, hit a few highlights because we want to move on to the discussion as quickly as possible. But you start out with and Andy Goodpaster graduated in West Point's class of 1939, 456 strong of which he stood number two academically. As a first classman, he was an honor committee member and the reg regimental adjutant. He chose to be commissioned in the Corps of Engineers. This is very important, the next thing I want to mention, because we always hear about Andrew Goodpaster as a soldier scholar, but usually the emphasis is on the scholar. During World War II, he commanded an engineer combat battalion that was in the thick of things during one of the bloodiest campaigns of the war, battles for Mont Cassino in Italy, including having his engineers fight as infantry. He led from the front as a lieutenant colonel, earned the Distinguished Service Cross, as everyone here knows, second only to the Medal of Honor, also the Silver Star, also, very importantly, two Purple Hearts, and his battalion was awarded a Presidential Unit Citation. So Goodpasture's later well-deserved 
reputation as a soldier scholar often tends to overshadow his credentials as a warrior. But he was that as well, and Dick tells that story very well. It was the second woman that shaped his life in a way that leads us to be here talking about him in the way we are now. After evacuation and an extended hospital stay, he was posted as a strategic planner under General George Marshall in the Pentagon. He excelled there as well. We'll get to that more, I'm sure, in discussion, and was later shepherded through three years at Princeton to earn a PhD. That wasn't necessarily the, the mold to be followed in those days, but he set a new mold, which a lot of other people that we all know about have, follow, have followed as well. That positioned him to take a key role when, in 1951, General Eisenhower was recalled to active duty to establish the initial NATO headquarters. Good Pastor was selected for the advanced party. He says in an introduction to another book I saw that he, he departed on one day's notice. Maybe it was less than 24 hours. And, uh, and he had responsibility for establishing the intelligence, operations, training, and planning functions of the new headquarters. To that end, he drafted NATO General Order Number 1, establishing the new Allied Command. Fifty years later, he and Dick Nelson were walking through the Pentagon when they passed a small framed copy of that document hanging in the E-ring. I wrote that, good pastor told Dick in passing. <laughs> that NATO tour was noteworthy for good pastor, too, in that after not more than nine years as a lieutenant colonel, he was promoted to colonel. That was quite a contrast with his experience as a captain, a rank he held for six months and five days. Dick has written, Eisenhower created the position of staff secretary when he went to work for General Eisenhower in the White House out of frustration early in the administration. Eisenhower created this position out of frustration. Initially, White House Paperwork was not handled as efficiently as Eisenhower wanted, and he became frustrated when papers were lost or delayed. He said that he was not going to be his own sergeant major and wanted a more responsible system established. After about 10 days, he had not seen much improvement, so he contacted an officer named Pete Carroll, then a student at the National War College who had served with good pastor on Eisenhower's staff at Shape. He told Pete, we need a secretary of the staff, and Carol, you're it, starting from this moment. Pulled him out of the War College. Eisenhower chose the title Staff Secretary and Defense Liaison Officer for the new position. He wanted this person to establish a close, substantive liaison, liaison with all the government on national security affairs, especially with state defense, CIA, and the AEC. This job proved to be, no surprise, enormously stressful. Pete Carroll suffered a heart attack in early October and died. President Eisenhower called on Goodpaster to be his replacement. He moved to into, into an office right outside the Oval Office. He had a staff of five, and he and they were nominally under the White House Chief of Staff, then as all will remember, Sherman Adams. But in practice, Goodpaster worked directly for the president on a daily basis. His job was to assure that the president was well informed on all important national security issues and foreign intelligence. And another key function, says Dick, was that Goodpaster ensured that presidential decisions 
were carried out as intended. In 1956, then Colonel Goodpastor was among those considered by a promotion board. His most recent officer efficiency report had been signed by only one person, his raider, who stated that Goodpastor was one of the finest, most resourceful, and effective staff officers I have known. That carried some weight since the raider was the commander in chief Dwight Eisenhower <laughs> and good pastor was soon thereafter selected for promotion to brigadier general. Here's something that I find enormously significant because it's unsolicited and unrequired. Many here will remember the, the name of Robert Cutler, a, a, a public servant in my, my judgment of the first water. And he had been special assistant for national security affairs nearly four years in that position. When he left, he wrote a letter to President Eisenhower, and that letter was about General Goodpaster. Said Cutler, I don't think I ever knew a fellow who could get to the heart of a subject quicker, retain so much of its substance in his mind, and work at such top speed, and all the time keep his good humor. The serenity of his intellectual process is fortified by his integrity and his courage. I, I think that's a great sentence. The serenity of his intellectual process is fortified by his integrity and his courage. And, added Cutler, he is as good a soldier and as good a man as I ever knew. When Maxwell Taylor came out of retirement to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he hired on Andrew Goodpaster as his special assistant, a job he filled for the next five years. A heart attack nearly ended his military career, but they gave him an easy job. He could recuperate as, uh, as commandant of the National War College, not much to do there. And then, and then he went back into the, into the thick of things, out to Vietnam, as Fred mentioned earlier, for a year as deputy to General Creighton Abrams, after that being named Sacure. So we're nearly finished here, and we'll get to the discussion in just a moment. But I do want to say this about, uh, about good pastor in Vietnam, because Vietnam has been central to my concerns for a long time now as I've tried to uh, follow and explain the career of General Creighton Abrams. Goodpaster and Abrams were of one mind on how the war should be prosecuted, as were the other key figures of the new team, most importantly, Ambassador Ellsworth Bunker and Bill Colby. During the preceding Westmoreland years, improving the South Vietnamese forces and support for the crucial pacification mission had been ignored in favor of fixation on a war of attrition as measured by body count. But now, within my judgment anyway, a better understanding of the nature of the war and a more availing approach to prosecuting it, population security became the measure of merit, and the South Vietnamese were finally provided the modern weapons Westmoreland had always denied them. During his year as deputy commander in Vietnam, Good Pastor also spent considerable time back here in Washington, helping the new Nixon, Nixon administration install a White House national security policy apparatus similar to that of the Eisenhower years. As the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, Dick Nelson says this at one point in his book. He says, this is a story about the DNA of the Army. I find that a charming and quite accurate turn of phrase. The book includes many fine photos. One in particular illustrates that observation. In the, 
rear seat of a vintage sedan is General Eisenhower as secretary. <coughs> and next to him is a very young and earnest looking Colonel Goodpaster, his staff assistant. I have seen a similar photo from a later day. General Goodpaster is then the Sacura, and next to him is Colonel Jack Galvin. Somewhere there may be another photo showing Galvin as Sacura, and next to him some equally youthful looking Colonel who we may someday learn was also a future Sacura. I hope so. The five years good pastor served as Sacura were, says Dick, politically the most trying period in the history of the Alliance as the Allies coped with the fallout from the Vietnam War and a dangerous crisis in the Middle East, which saw NATO raise its alert to the highest level since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he weathered that crisis and helped others weather that crisis in a wonderful way. I have to say this too, as, as a West Pointer, Many here will remember that after a brief period as a distinguished professor at the Citadel, having retired from the Army, General Goodpaster came out of retirement to take over as superintendent at West Point in the wake of a major cheating scandal. Further selfless and effective, I believe, service on his part. We West Pointers owe him a great deal for that. After four years of soup, once again retired, for the next three decades, he took on important responsibilities which Fred and others here, of course, know intimately about. In 1984, President Reagan awarded him the nation's highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. For, said the president, lifetime accomplishments have, that have changed the face and the soul of our country. That pretty much said it all. And it is the story Dick Nelson has told so well in this outstanding biography. Thank you so much, Dick. Well, Dick, if that presentation doesn't push you onto the bestseller list, I'm not sure it will. I mean, that, that was just terrific. Thank you Thank so much. You. Um, so I'm going to pass as quickly as I can uh, to the audience. Uh, I'm, I, I want to start with just a couple of questions, and the first will probably be highly unfair. Um, I'll try to make the others more fair. Uh, but uh, you read that Good Pastor's story was one of leadership and providing security in uncertain times uh, when it is needed most. Many could say we're in those times now. Matt Burroughs, formerly uh, of the uh, National Intelligence Council, now working for us, in looking at Global Risk 2035, took a look at three issues that really concern him. One of them is the return of the danger of major power conflict. Not mm -hmm. that it's likely, but that it was unthinkable until recently. Uh, a second was the decline of, um, uh, of Western democracies. Again, not inevitable, but signs of it. Uh, and a third, uh, the breakdown of the global order that General Goodpaster was so much a part of building up. Uh, I'm not sure he'd see it that way, but if he were around with us today, what would he say? Well, he'd probably start by saying, uh, a more tough duty here, guys. We're going to have to give it all we've got. Um, you know, and you've said, and so, and Dick has said beautifully in this book, 
that General Goodpaster was able to achieve what he did, I'm going to say, because of who he was and what he was, the kind of man he was. Um, an anecdote occurs to me that, that, that Dick tells in the book that, I, that made a huge impact on me. Good pastor grew up but sort of on a farm in Midwest. He wanted to be a teacher. And in those days, the way you did it, if you didn't have you know, a lot of resources, you went to college for a couple of years, made a little money, got a certificate. You could then teach at a certain level, get a little more money together, go back, finish your degree, then teach maybe another level, and so on. And he was doing that when the, the impact of the Great Depression fell on him and his family as on so many others. And he, and he couldn't continue, no more money. So he takes a job. He takes a job in a, a meatpacking com company. Uh, I can only imagine what a nasty job that was. And yet uh, he did it uncomplainingly and well. And while he's doing this, the meat packers decide to organize, organize labor. They create a labor union in, in this company. And they elect Good Pastor, the president of their union. <laughs> he is 19 years old. You know that most of these other fellows were probably older and much older and rough-hewn types, I might, so I'm yeah. going to surmise. Yeah. And yet he, dealt, he took that job brilliantly. They saw something in him then that others have seen him through the rest of his career. Uh, the, the term that, that kept coming back to my mind as I read Dick's account of him in one role and then another is honest broker. Absolutely honest, fair-minded, decent man. People of all uh, uh, stripes, this is a term that you will you will like because it's contemporarily relevant. People of all stripes looked at him and saw somebody they could trust, that they could level with, that they could uh, be sure would represent their views honestly and, and uh, candidly, but also with balance. And of course, all the people that, uh, that worked for him, or, or that, excuse me, that he worked for, for, saw him in that same way. So when he said something, you knew that that was his best judgment of whatever it was. And he had no interest in, it, in advancing one person over another or one element over another, one party over another. He had an interest in doing what was best for the United States of America in his best judgment. And, and as we know from Dick's account, he is extraordinarily successful in doing that at one level after another after another. So. What would, he, uh, what would he do today? I think he would try, try as he always did, to prioritize. There are always more things on your plate than you can handle, and that was certainly true for him, especially at, when he rose to the NATO level. He, he had a card. He used, I, I live off three by five cards. All my, all my friends know that. He had a card that he carried in his pocket. Dick tells us about this. And on that card, he had the four or five major things that he was worried about or trying to deal with as the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Well, you would think that's a fairly short list. He had, I mean, he could have, it could have been a list toilet paper roll long, right? But it wasn't. He had five or six things on the card, and they were the key things. Well, 
The other thing I would say about this, this is getting to be too long an answer, I know that. It's perfect uh, answer. Is that these were not things that you check off because, you know, I bought a quart of milk today or that's, no, no, no. These things are there when he came into the job. They were still there when he finished the job five years later, but he had made significant progress in all of them, in my judgment, and, but, he, but he kept reminding himself to focus on the main chance. So those are the, some of the things, the qualities that he had that I think would, would guide him if he were here with us today and we were discussing those, okay, what now? He'd prioritize and stick through it and then be the honest broker to get it done. Yeah, and take, and let me, I have to add one more thing because what you just said triggered this. He said, take responsibility for the success of the overall enterprise, not just your little, little piece of it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when he was an army officer, he commanded a combat engineer battalion, but he, he took responsibility for the whole, whole of the enterprise. And the uh, same thing when he is wounded and then he has to go back and be a staff officer, but he works for another master of the trade marshal and so on. It, it, all, it reminds me of a little thing I read once. Somebody was taken on a tour of the Steinway Piano Company's factory in New York. And they came on this one place and an elderly lady, long gray hair and all, she was stringing the piano. And so just to, to, to strike up a conversation. She says, what are you doing? And she drew herself up to her five feet three or whatever she was, and she said, I am building Steinway grand pianos. She didn't say I'm stringing a thing, you know? That's the way he looked at, I think, that's the way he looked at his responsibilities. Uh, one, one more quick question. Um, uh, President Clinton famously said, I can't remember where this was, he talked about this, about how he, he never had that great historic moment to become that great historic president. So some, some presidents are in at time of war, some presidents are in time of, with General Goodpaster, his journey was shaped by momentous events. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. What were the events and how did they shape him as a person? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Yeah. You'll, you'll know part of this answer before I even say it. Uh, uh, General Goodpaster, I graduated from West Point in the class of 1939. And, uh, and they came out into the Army just as World War II is about to occur. Um, my class was 1956, and when we were there, the classmates of his were the, were the leaders to whom we looked up. Bill McCaffrey was the deputy commandant of cadets. Mike Davison was the first regimental commander. Julian Ewell was the second regimental commander. These officers, good pastor and others like him of that same generation, same timing, came out into the Army just before World War II, and they had the, uh, as we expanded the Army from a few hundred thousand to over eight million, they had the occasion to rise many levels quite rapidly like he did from captain, not like he did from lieutenant colonel. Mm -hmm. and, they, and the ones who were proved up to it continued to rise. He was one of those who, who proved, proved up to it. So, so their battalion commanders, most of them, or regimental commanders in World War II, even though they've only been out of the military academy three, four years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they rise a second time, you know, the Vietnam era comes. We again, we greatly expand the army, and uh, 
they become, now they become general officers, corps commanders maybe, or, or higher, as he did. So, so he lived through a succession of, of, of I will say, I don't, I don't know, the term character building. I'm not so sure about that, because I think he sort of started out that way, as I've already illustrated with the meatpackers. But, but opportunity building, certainly, and then those who are able to seize the opportunity and grow in the carrying out of it, uh, uh, continued rise. Great Depression clearly shaped yep. his, you know, the, 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 the youth that he had and the opportunities that were open to him. He would have become, if it hadn't been a depression, he probably would have been a high school or college teacher all of yeah. his life. Instead, look what happened. It's a Great Depression. World War II, for sure. Uh, the the post-World War II crisis that led to the formation of NATO and his involvement the second day. You know, they call him up one day and the next day he's on his way. And he's one of the first two guys there and he writes order number one that establishes the thing. So he grows up in this and, and then, then, you know, the opportunity to work with Eisenhower, uh, the opportunity then to go back and play a key role, I think, in the, in the Vietnam era because it's at the transition point from the war, the, in my judgment, the, the approach that failed to the approach that, that succeeded much, much uh, more. Can't resist saying, and had we not squandered the four years of support from the people in the Congress and even most of the media in the earlier period, the later period could have turned out differently than it did. So uh, I don't know of any, <laughs> well, and of course he served a whole lot of yeah. time too. Yeah. I don't know of any other period like that yeah. with that many key things, each one requiring a, a response of the kind that he proved every time that he could do. It's, it's yeah. a reason why this story is so important now yeah. and into the future because it's a person who was able to navigate these moments of history to play an absolutely crucial role across administrations and some people just get lost in the flow of history and don't play the role that they can play and that's a yeah. message that I'm actually trying to yeah. send to and, and also not, the young people. Fred, not, across, not just across yeah. administrations right. or political parties or factions domestically right. but internationally as well. And, and when he went to NATO, uh, President Nixon said NATO was in disarray. Hmm. Well, it was in disarray for a lot of different reasons, the French having pulled out of the military yeah. alliance and so on. And he, yeah. he took that as a challenge, yeah. uh, not as something to uh, be just hand-wringing about. So I think we have a few minutes for questions. And so let me uh, pick up um, any questions, comments. Um, uh, Protests. Somebody there. Please. Another somebody here. We'll take these two questions. I'd like to tell, uh, my name's Tony Smith. I'm a great fan of General Scowcroft and a Bob Sorley groupie. Um, I'd like to tell a brief anecdote which will add to the lore of uh, General Goodpaster, uh, particularly with the high regard he was held by his contemporaries. The story's told by Ed Rowney. I think Ed Rowney would be happy with me telling it since he tells it himself. Uh, Ed Rowney was assigned in World War II to General Marshall's war planning staff, where then Lieutenant Colonel Goodpaster was already assigned. Within uh, 24 hours of getting this assignment, Rowney was called in by General Marshall and told to prepare an operations plan for a significant operation and had to turn it in two days' time. Rowney worked night and day to get it done, finished it. Then he said to himself, you know, 
General Good, or Colonel Goodpasture has been here longer than I have. I think I'll let him take a look at this. Uh, and so he asked uh, Andy Goodpasture to look at it. Goodpasture did, said, you know, Ed, this is a brilliant plan. I have a couple of little suggestions for you. Perhaps the order of battle ought to be slightly changed. Maybe you should put the emphasis on this flank rather than here. Uh, maybe some coordinating instructions could <laughs> be improved. Uh, and by the time he was finished... Other than that, it's just yeah, fine. Right. <laughs> Other than that, it's just fine. <laughs> <that, laughs> right? By the time he was finished, the plan had been completely <laughs> turned over from top to bottom, facing Rowney with a problem. Should he go with his original plan or go with what Goodpaster told him to do? He decided wisely to go with what General, then Colonel Goodpaster gave. Uh, he turned it into Marshall, General Marshall. General Marshall said, this is terrific work, Rowney. Congratulations, this is exactly what I was hoping I would get from you. <laughs> Overcome by guilt, Rowney said, General Marshall, I have to admit that Colonel Goodpaster played a major role in what the product I gave to you. And Marshall responded, I know that, Rowney, but anybody who's smart enough to get Andy Goodpaster to do his work for him has got a place on this staff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thank you for that. Uh, the, we, we got all that on film, I hope. The, uh, 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 so, uh, so questions or anecdotes, uh, please. Yes, here and here. Here, here she comes. Uh, my name is Robert Beecroft. I've been in the State Department for 45 years. I'm still standing. Uh, I was, my first job in the Foreign Service was as Deputy Political Advisor to, to General Goodpaster at SHAPE. Uh, I was right out of the Army myself and could speak Army, and so the State Department wisely sent me back to the Army. Um, the first day I was there, General Goodpaster came in and said, um, would you please do some research on my responsibilities as SAC, you're in Svalbard, Spitsbergen, north of Norway. So I had to look up what Svalbard was, and I did, and uh, went into some depth with this, and it turned out that Svalbard, by the Treaty of 1920 that ended the post-World War I uh, repercussions, uh, defined Svalbard as an integral part of Norway, but at the same time internationalized it economically and militarily. In fact, there are, to this day, Russian, quote, coal miners, unquote, on Svalbard. I went back to General Goodpaster and said, sir, as far as I can see, you have no responsibilities on Svalbard. And he said, I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> now, a uh, quick question. Um, when I was there, of course, Shape had moved to Mons. The question I have has to do with um, what General Goodpasture did, because he did a lot, to keep the lines open to the French military. Yeah. We knew that he went to Paris a lot, not always in uniform. Yes. But we never heard anything in terms of the details of what was being discussed or what the results were. Yeah, that's Thank a very you. good question. How did, uh, how did General Goodpasture keep the, the lines open to the French when, uh, when he took over as secure after they had withdrawn from the military alliance? Uh, Dick has some nice uh, material on, on that in the book as well. Uh, the one that I'll, that I'll tell you about is that there were, there were some planners and they were looking at uh, how they might shape the plan so that if hostilities with the East occurred again, and NATO was losing, the French might be induced to come back in and shore them up. 
and he didn't quite, uh, he wasn't comfortable with the way the planners had shaped that scenario. And so he went to them, he talked to them, he said, listen, why don't we shape it uh, not as the NATO is losing, but uh, we're, we're re-engaged and, and we're doing our best to prevail and the French come back in and help us to prevail. It's just a difference in mindset, you know? And they, they accepted that. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's, that's uh, I thought that was a perceptive thing on his part. Now, I don't know the next thing I'm gonna tell you. This is a speculative uh, uh, thing. But uh, even much uh, uh, in, in earlier uh, times, there was speculation about whether the French would come back in on their, on their own or not, and if so, with what, and where could it be utilized, and so on. And there were informal staff talks with the French all, all along, at, I think, at many, many levels. So, so his idea always was to cast it in positive, in the most positive terms, maybe to be even, now I'm speculating again, to be optimistic about that prospect so that if the need did arise and the French were willing, it would be as smooth an integration as could be. But he was very sensitive to the tenure of the expectations, I think. That's a, good, that's a very good point to have raised. Thank you. A very quick question, uh, and uh, this will be all that we have time for now. So quick question and answer. I'm Timothy Towell, Foreign Service Officer, only 31 years, <laughs> starting in the Kennedy administration, and having the honor to work for many times with this great American hero, uh, Brent Scowcroft. Uh, I feel great. I feel wonderful after listening about wonderful patriots, intelligent patriots, people with humor, positive people, and how they saved the world in the United States of America in a time in the past when we were challenged. When I go out of here, I will stop feeling good <laughs> because where is in the 21st century, where on TV that we watch day and night, do we see a General Brent Scowcroft, a Susan Eisenhower, a Dwight David Eisenhower, a General Good Pastor, and your good self, sir, what do we do? Are there anybody from the White House here ready to learn something so that our nation is not in peril? Or do I go out and feel sick again and watch that stuff, I don't use words that some people use on TV, stuff on TV that makes me feel bad, sir? Uh, that, that was longer. <laughs> but I, 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 I have to object because that was longer than 140 characters. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, the, uh, but, but Bob Sorley, I turn it over to you to answer. Well, it goes back to what Fred asked me in, initially, and I answered long-windedly, and as this time I'll be concise. Uh, what would General Goodpaster have done? He would have sized up the situation. He would have established his priorities. He would have uh, brought his uh, intellect and his character to bear on those most important issues and he would have done that in an effort to bring together everyone that he could influence to do what? One thing, serve the good of the republic. And, that, and so, you know, I do think we have plenty of people uh, like that. And, and I, of course, I don't know all the, all the people in the, in the cast of characters that's now being assembled. Uh, 
I do know a lot of the younger military officers, from, from four stars down to captains. And a lot of them are really fine people, and they're motivated in the same way that, uh, that uh, young officers like Captain Scowcroft were motivated when they influenced us as cadets. And, uh, and, and so I have every hope that uh, the, the collective influence and involvement of people like that, not just in military service, but across the, across the government and across the body politic, uh, will, uh, will, will help us now as it has always helped us. Now, I, I hope I'm not being a Pollyanna about that. We'll have to see. Um, <laughs> let, let me just add to that, that we're working uh, at different levels of this administration, transition teams, and we're seeing a hell of a lot of talent. A lot of talent, a lot of principled people doing uh, uh, a lot of good work and attempting to do a lot of good work. So I, uh, and, and certainly the talent we see flow into the Atlantic Council at all age groups is really remarkable. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually more optimistic uh, than, than about the future as well. Um, let, let me um, close by just saying, uh, first of all, it's nice to have had you all here at this uh, draft Scowcroft movement. <laughs> because, because I, that, 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 that seems to have been the underlying theme to a lot of the comments. Uh, beyond that, I want to thank you, General Scowcroft, for being here. Susan Eisenhower, thank you so much. Bob Sorley. Uh, uh, Dick Nelson for this incredible book. Wonderful that your wife is here. I know this was a labor of love. I know the time you put into it. It's worthwhile. The story, the lessons of this story are well worth getting out here. To the Sullivans, thank you for the remarkable inspiration of General Goodpaster. Thank you all for being here and uh, we'll have this online. You can pick up the flyer to uh, order your book uh, out in the lobby. Thank you so much.